Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A listener's note. This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. On the morning of April 19, 1995, an ex-soldier and security guard parked a rented rider truck in front of the north side of the nine-story Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. The truck was packed with nearly 5,000 pounds of explosives. A meeting that was being taped in a building across the street captured what happened at exactly 9.02 that morning. Receive information regarding... One hundred and sixty eight people, including 19 children, were killed in the explosion and 500 more were injured. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the history of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. In this episode, we're taking you through the devastating story of the Oklahoma City bombing with the help of someone who survived the blast as we try to understand the day that changed the face of terrorism in the United States forever. On that day in 1995, the heart was torn out of America's heartland. The Oklahoma City bombing was the deadliest U.S. bombing since a horse-drawn carriage packed with 100 pounds of dynamite and 500 pounds of iron was detonated outside the headquarters of J.P. Morgan Bank on Wall Street in 1920. And until 9-11, it was the worst act of terrorism in U.S. history. The media was quick to speculate that Islamic fundamentalists might have carried out the attack. There were similarities with two other bombings where Islamic fundamentalists were involved. One in 1983 at the U.S. Marine Corps barracks in Beirut. And the other in the underground garage of the World Trade Center in New York two years earlier in 1993. But Americans were shocked when they learned it was one of their own who committed this unbelievable act of terror. To really understand what happened, let's first look at the events as they unfolded. 7 a.m., April 19, 1995. Timothy McVeigh, a decorated U.S. military veteran, woke up and drove a rented rider truck packed with 13 barrels of ammonium nitrate fertilizer and racing fuel to Oklahoma City. A few minutes before 9 o'clock, McVeigh pulled over near the Alfred P. Murrah building and lit the first fuse. He continued driving, then stopped at a light and lit the second fuse. 9 a.m. McVeigh pulled into a parking lot in front of the federal building. He turned off the ignition, set the parking brake, and then dropped the key behind the front seat. He then got out of the vehicle and locked the door behind him and calmly walked away, crossed the street into a parking lot, and then down an alley. Then he started to jog. McVeigh turned down another alley, and when he was about 20 feet into that alley, 
the bomb went off. He took out the earplugs he was wearing and kept going. He passed several people, talking to at least one. Then he got into the getaway car he had left in place earlier. A 1977 Mercury Marquis that he bought for $250 five days before in Junction City, Kansas. And he headed north on the I-35. At around 10 a.m., he was pulled over by state trooper Charles Hanger because the getaway car didn't have a license plate. It was like he wanted to get caught. During the stop, the trooper also noticed that McVeigh was carrying a concealed gun, a Glock semi-automatic pistol. When McVeigh was arrested and taken into custody, the tall, skinny 26-year-old with a short brown brush cut was wearing a T-shirt with a picture on it of Abraham Lincoln. It also had on it the words shouted by Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, Sic Semper Tyrannis, which translates to thus always to tyrants. You can see the shirt in McVeigh's now famous mugshot. On the back of that shirt was a quote from Thomas Jefferson. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. He was also carrying an envelope with various pieces of paper and clippings from books and newspapers. There were pages from a book called The Turner Diaries. This book is a favorite of right-wing militia types. It's a fictional book about an attack on a federal building by anti-government patriots using a truck bomb. And McVeigh had a piece of paper with the quote, when the government fears the people, there is liberty. Underneath it, McVeigh had handwritten, maybe now there would be liberty. Meantime, back in Oklahoma City, the scene immediately after the blast was apocalyptic. The federal building, which took up a full block, was bisected, like the front half of the building had been ripped off as it was blown away by the truck bomb. The complete north side of the building was just gone. Those working in the front offices of the nine-story building tumbled to the street below. The devastation and loss was hard to comprehend. The blast could be felt over 30 miles away, and it blew out the windows in nearly every building within a five-block radius. There was glass and debris scattered everywhere. Cars on the street were incinerated. A woman getting out of her parked car at that exact moment was burned to death. Survivors ran from the scene, some with their clothing blown off, glass and plaster stuck to their bodies. There were trails of blood for blocks. Rescue efforts were instantaneous and massive. Triage centers were set up all around the Murrah building to treat the wounded. Hundreds of doctors, nurses, medics, and volunteers reported to the scene of the explosion and at local hospitals. The tragedy affected so many. Rebecca Anderson, a 37-year-old nurse, rushed to the Murrah building to help. She was hit on the head with a piece of falling debris. Initially, she said she was okay, but within minutes, she collapsed and she was rushed to hospital, where she died four days later. 
More than 500 federal employees worked in the Alfred P. Murrah building. It housed offices for several federal agencies, including the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, along with the Social Security Office, Veterans Affairs, the DEA, which stands for the Drug Enforcement Agency, and Housing and Urban Development. There was also a daycare center on the second floor. 41 children were enrolled at the center, and on any given day, about 30 of them attended. When the blast occurred, parents were just dropping off their youngsters. After the blast, the daycare was completely gone. When the smoke cleared on the first day, emergency workers tagged the feet of at least a dozen children. Two were burned beyond recognition. The bodies of the rest were mangled. Emergency workers dug through piles of wall panels, carpet, brick, steel girders, concrete floors, and office furniture to reach survivors buried beneath the rubble. It's a very slow, tedious process of removing the debris and extricating the fatalities and searching for survivors. You know, you hope and you pray that every time you turn a stone, there'll be a survivor somewhere. It hurts deep down as to why someone would do something of this, of this magnitude. It's just, it's unreal. Terry Talley worked on the third floor of the Murrah building at the Federal Employees Credit Union. She had just sat down at her desk when the bomb went off. By the time she stopped falling, she was in the basement, trapped under piles of debris. Terry says when she came to the first time, she thought it was a terrible dream. And I thought, this can't be real. I mean, we've all had dreams like that. But I was just, you know, this cannot be real because it was awful. It was awful. It was uh, really loud. I didn't hear the bomb. I didn't. I, I don't know if I was just too close or at that time it just wasn't real to me. I don't know. It was really, really fast, you know. So I really can't say. I just know when I came to, I thought, God, this is a dream. And of course, I said, you know, I'll just go to sleep and when I wake up, everything will be okay. But of course, when I came to that second time, it wasn't. The next time Terry came to, she thought she must have been in a car accident. She was buried in concrete and granite, and she couldn't see or breathe very well, so she couldn't even call out for help. Someone nearby was screaming for help, so Terry hoped that when rescuers came for that person, they would find her too. Retired firefighter Rowdy Baxter, who was near the Murrah building when the bomb went off, rushed to the scene and began searching for survivors. He actually passed me up the first time. He saw he saw me, but basically he said I was in this wall of concrete and you know granite, and just a little hole, just a little part of me was showing, and I had wore a houndstooth check suit, so he thought I was a couch cushion. So he, yeah, so he just passed me up thinking, uh, and then he just said, I don't know, something just kind of made me want to go back and check. And, and I'm thankful because he, he did, he, he touched me. And I said, get me out of here. Rowdy called for help and other rescuers joined him as they frantically dug out Terry. Before they could get her out, all rescue workers were ordered to leave the building because authorities thought they had found another bomb. My guys did not leave, which was awesome. 
Uh, my first, that first guy that had come up to me felt that if they were to leave, I wouldn't make it, so they stuck it out with me. There weren't too many people that stayed behind. In fact, he had told the others, you know, I just don't want to leave her. And so they start, you know, just working faster and harder. Finally, two hours after the explosion, Terry was free from the waist up. Worried about the possibility of another bomb, rescuers pulled her free from the wreckage, breaking her ankle in the process. But she was alive, unlike so many others. 18 of Terry's co-workers died that day. While Terry's dramatic rescue was taking place, others were frantically trying to save 20-year-old Dana Bradley, who just happened to be in the building that day to get a social security card for her four-month-old son. She was pinned beneath a concrete wall in the flooded basement and was buried under so much debris that it took rescuers 90 minutes just to get oxygen and a blanket to her. Eventually, doctors made the decision that the only way to save her was to amputate her right leg below the knee. But she had lost so much blood that doctors were unable to find a vein to give her proper anesthetic. So they gave her an intramuscular painkiller, which is about 50% as effective. Working by the light of a generator, a surgeon and another doctor lying on their stomachs in a couple inches of water took 10 minutes to perform the amputation. They tied off her leg with a nylon cord, then with a scalpel and eventually a pocket knife, the doctors removed her leg. That pocket knife is still on display at the National Memorial Museum. Dana lost much more than her leg that day. Her infant son, along with her three-year-old son and her mother, were killed in the blast. They had all gone with her to get the social security card for the newborn. Shortly after the blast, a 25-year-old bank employee in the area started taking photos of the horrific scene. He quickly went to Walmart to have them developed, and the photos he captured caused the three clerks at the photo desk to start weeping. You probably remember the images snapped by this amateur photographer, like the one of a police sergeant who pulled a baby out of the rubble, handing her to a firefighter or the one of a firefighter carrying the limp body of the blood-soaked baby girl in his arms. Within hours, those photos were transmitted on the Associated Press photo wire, and by the next morning, they were in newspapers around the world. Those images became a grim symbol of the bombing and some of the very first images that the world saw of this horrible event. The baby in the picture was Bailey Ullman. She had turned one just the day before on April 18th. She didn't survive. She was pronounced dead at the scene. In the days that followed, the photographer, Charles Porter, said he wished he never took the pictures and he couldn't even bring himself to pick up his camera again. He was worried that the photo had hurt Bailey's family. But soon, he was introduced to the baby's mother, and she said the photo had actually helped her. Erin Allman said that she never would have known that her baby was treated so well if those pictures hadn't been taken. 
When the sun came up on April 20th, downtown Oklahoma City still looked like a war zone. Every single street was littered with broken glass. A one-story building two and a half blocks away collapsed after being weakened by the blast. At least 75 downtown buildings were damaged beyond repair, including some of the city's oldest churches. At the bomb site, the search for survivors had slowed to a hopeless crawl. It's just devastation. There's, uh, there's no semblance on any of the floors that are remaining to the office environment, uh, other than you might make a semblance of a desk or a file cabinet. The best guess I got from uh, the team this morning was, uh, after putting their heads together through the night and looking at it, we're probably looking at four to six days before they can give me any high percentage of uh, assurance that the building is clear. There were still some unexplored cavities that might support human life, but there was little hope of finding anyone alive on the lower floors. And remember, the daycare center was on the second floor. Inside the wreckage, the stench of decaying flesh had become so strong that firemen and medical examiners had to wear masks and smear Vicks VapoRub or oil of wintergreen under their noses. Bodies were visible, but they couldn't be extricated from the debris. At the medical examiner's office, authorities were using dental records, fingerprints, and birthmarks to identify the dead. Medical authorities said the first 72 hours would be critical in the search for survivors. And when that deadline passed without finding anyone else alive in the rubble, weary firefighters continued to search anyway vowing to stay on the job until they had explored every cavity that might sustain human life. The search was a painfully slow version of an old-fashioned fire brigade. One bucket at a time, rescuers cleared the rubble by passing plastic buckets along human chains that snaked back to wheelbarrows. At the end of the line, the FBI agents waited to sift each load for possible evidence. As they burrowed deeper, they began finding limbs, pieces of bodies, and clothing. While search and rescue operations continued, an intensive hunt began for whoever was responsible for the bombing, unaware that he was actually already in custody in Perry, Oklahoma, following that traffic stop on I-35. State Governor Frank Keating couldn't comprehend who could commit such a horrible act of violence. The vicious animals that did this, their crimes are unspeakable, they're against humanity, they're unforgivable. I mean, this is a, what, what, what is behind us is, a, is, a, is an act, or was an act of unspeakable horror and tragedy. In Washington, President Bill Clinton learned about the explosion from his press secretary at about 10.30 a.m. on the day of the bombing. Just as the president was beginning an Oval Office meeting with the Turkish prime minister, the White House Chief of Staff left the meeting about a half an hour later with instructions from President Clinton to call Attorney General Janet Reno and make sure that federal agencies were coordinating their responses and had all the resources they needed. Authorities proceeded on the theory that it was a terrorist attack against the government. An array of federal law enforcement officials, emergency management personnel, and military forces were dispatched to Oklahoma City in an operation that constituted one of the biggest responses to a crime in American history. The Firearms Bureau sent national emergency teams to coordinate the examination of the bomb site. 
the analysis of the explosives, and the search for fragments of the vehicle in which they believe the bomb was planted. The FBI sent four special agents to manage the investigative operation, and a 24-hour FBI command center with 400 telephones was established in Oklahoma to coordinate the work of explosive teams, bomb technicians, and portable scientific gear used to analyze chemical residues. The president later dispatched the head of FEMA to Oklahoma City. On the afternoon of the attack, President Clinton left the Oval Office periodically to watch news reports from the scene on a TV in his secretary's office. He was troubled by what he saw, especially the pictures of children who had been killed. He also discussed the situation with Oklahoma's governor and members of the state's congressional delegation. Later, he wrote out remarks in longhand, then went to the White House briefing room at about 5.15 p.m to deliver his remarks to the waiting reporters. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice and it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it and I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. He was joined at the news conference by Attorney General Janet Reno, who was grilled by reporters over who might be responsible for the attack. Have you decided whether this is just a coincidence that it happened on the second anniversary of the Waco siege? Again, we are pursuing all leads. We cannot tell exactly what happened or who is responsible and it would be better not to comment until we can conclusively talk about it. Has anyone, has anyone called to claim responsibility for this, any credible group or organization? Again, I don't think that I should comment on the evidence because to do so would hinder the investigation. It was a car bomb. Again, I cannot confirm any evidentiary lead that we are pursuing because I think that would hinder the investigation. General, if uh, another government or governments uh, are found to be involved, would military retaliation be appropriate? Will it be uh, carried I, out? I don't think that we should deal with what ifs. I think we should make sure that those people who are responsible are pursued and brought to justice. At this point, authorities simply didn't have any solid leads or suspects. So investigators considered two possibilities. The first was, could this bombing in fact be linked to the Waco seizure since the blast occurred on the second anniversary of the fiery ending to that siege? If you're not familiar, well, in 1993, local ATF agents attempted to raid the compound of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, looking for illegal explosives. Agents ended up in a gunfight with members of the cult. Then, following a 51-day standoff, the FBI tear-gassed the compound and the Davidians set multiple fires. More than 80 people were killed in the flames, including 22 children. The aggressive response by federal agents triggered criticism from right-wing militia groups and other anti-government factions. Some law enforcement officials thought it was possible they had something to do with the bombing in Oklahoma City, but others disagreed. They thought there was no way the Branch Davidians or militia had the technical expertise to build such a massive bomb. 
The second possible cause focused on the chance that the attack had been the work of Islamic militants, like those who bombed the World Trade Center in February 1993. But if that were the case, it was unclear why they would target Oklahoma City. Some Middle Eastern groups held meetings there, and the city was home to at least three mosques. But of the estimated 5 million Muslims in the U.S. in 1995, very few actually lived in Oklahoma City. Several news organizations, including CNN, reported that investigators were questioning several men, described as being Middle Eastern in appearance. Two in Dallas, one in Oklahoma City, and another in London, England. Some Arab-American organizations expressed fear of a backlash and said it was unfair to implicate Muslims without any evidence. In the confusion following the bombing, investigators really struggled to find a solid lead. But then they got a break that would eventually take them down a completely different and unexpected path. More than a city block away from the federal building, investigators found a rear axle that they believed was part of the truck that carried the bomb. The force of the explosion sent 250 pounds of twisted metal whirling through the air. It landed on the hood of a parked car, narrowly missing three people. That axle was stamped with a vehicle identification number, so investigators were able to quickly trace it back to a rider rental agency 245 miles away in Junction City, Kansas. Agents raced to that shop but found the license used to rent the truck was a fake. But the owner of the rider agency was able to provide enough of a description so that composite sketches of two suspects were prepared. On April 20th, the sketches of John Doe No. 1 and John Doe No. 2 were released to the public, and authorities confirmed they did not appear to be Middle Eastern. And the owner of the rider agency said they didn't speak with accents. Attorney General Janet Reno announced a $2 million reward for information leading to arrests in this case. Investigators in Junction City, Kansas, interviewed everyone in town hoping anyone else had also seen the two men. They went to the Dreamland Motel and asked if anyone matching the sketches had stayed there. The manager remembered a man who looked like John Doe number one. They checked the records and this time, John Doe number one had not used an alias. He signed the card, Timothy McVeigh. Meanwhile, McVeigh was still sitting in Noble County Jail in Perry, Oklahoma he was just hours away from a scheduled arraignment that could have resulted in his release on $500 bail for the gun and traffic charges. But before that could happen, the FBI traced McVeigh to the jail cell in Perry and contacted authorities with instructions not to release him. Attorney General Janet Reno broke the news to an awaiting nation. Director Free and I have just spoken with the president and I am pleased to announce that one of the individuals believed to be responsible for Wednesday's terrible attack on the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City has been arrested. Timothy McVeigh, age 27, who we previously called John Doe No. 1, the man with the light brown crew cut, was arrested by local authorities on a traffic violation 
about 60 miles from Oklahoma City on Wednesday morning, about an hour and a half after the explosion occurred. At the time of his arrest, he was in the possession of a firearm. He has been in the local jail since the arrest. He will be taken into custody by the FBI. Searches are being planned and executed at several locations around the country this afternoon. I remind everyone that John Doe number two remains at large. He should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. There is a strong likelihood that other persons are involved in this tragedy as well. In the county jail in Perry, Oklahoma, FBI agents arrested McVeigh. He was transported in handcuffs and leg irons from the small jail to a waiting van that took him to a helicopter that would take him back to Oklahoma City for an arraignment. When he emerged from the courthouse in Perry, Oklahoma, it was the first time the world saw the face of the man accused of this horrible act of terrorism. He was dressed in his orange prison jumpsuit and showed no emotion as a crowd of at least 250 people booed and shouted baby killer and bastard as he was led to a waiting van. When McVeigh registered at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City, Kansas, five days before the bombing, he gave a home address of Decker, Michigan. That address led agents to a farm belonging to James Nichols. James had a brother named Terry Nichols, who used to live on the farm as well, but had recently relocated to Kansas. Both James and Terry had links to a paramilitary group called the Michigan Militia. The same day McVeigh was arrested, the Nichols brothers were also taken into custody for questioning and held as material witnesses. Before we continue with the story of the Oklahoma City bombing, let's take a second here to talk about American militias. They're at the center of this story, and these extremist anti-government groups were a growing phenomenon in the U.S. in the 90s. I already mentioned the deadly raid by federal officials in Waco, Texas in 1993, but there was also one in Ruby Ridge, Idaho in 1992. In that case, things went horribly wrong when ATF agents and U.S. Marshals went to arrest right-wing activist Randy Weaver for selling illegal weapons. Weaver's wife and 14-year-old son, along with a U.S. Marshal, were killed during an 11-day standoff at the family's remote cabin. Weaver eventually surrendered, but the actions by agents at Ruby Ridge, along with the deadly siege at Waco, outraged fringe segments of society, which included militia groups. Members of those groups fervently supported gun rights, and many had a burning hatred for the government. They called themselves patriots and were prepared to defend the country against its own leaders. Among their concerns was the belief that the government planned to wage a war against citizens who refused to give up their guns. The Michigan militia, who the Nichols brothers had been linked to, was one of the most prominent of these groups, and during the 90s reportedly had up to 10,000 members.
On April 23rd, four days after the bombing, a 90-minute prayer service was held at the Oklahoma State Fairgrounds, about two and a half miles away from the blast site. More than 20,000 people stood in line for nearly three hours to pray with President Clinton and the evangelist preacher Billy Graham for the victims of the disaster. The massive crowd spilled from the state fairgrounds arena to an exhibition hall and a baseball stadium where the prayer service was broadcast over loudspeakers. The anger you feel is valid, but you must not allow yourselves to be consumed by it. The hurt you feel must not be allowed to turn into hate, but instead into the search for justice. After the service, Clinton met with the mother of little Bailey Allman, the baby who was photographed being carried out of the building in the arms of a firefighter. Clinton told Aaron Allman that he was sorry. His eyes brimmed over with tears as he hugged her. The next day, Bailey was buried in a tiny white coffin covered with pink carnations, white daisies, and a pink ribbon that read Miss Bailey. The stories of the dead children were absolutely heartbreaking. Two little brothers, aged two and five, who were buried in a coffin together because their family couldn't bear the thought of them being separated. A four-year-old girl who was killed in the blast. She was at the building with her grandparents who were at the social security office to fill out some paperwork. Her grandparents' bodies were missing in the rubble. A mother who ran to the scene and frantically searched the area for her son. She had dropped him off at the daycare center that morning. She climbed the pile of debris in front of the building until rescue workers begged her to leave. When her son's body was found and sent to a funeral home, the funeral director persuaded her not to look at his body because it was too badly mangled. After the prayer service, rescuers continued their work, using jackhammers and chainsaws to remove a three-meter-high pile of rubble pancaked on the area. Nine floors of concrete, steel rods, air ducts, electric cables, and furniture were telescoped into an area of the basement, now called the pit by firefighters. As they got closer to the rubble from the daycare center, they began to uncover children's shoes, pieces of clothing, and coloring books. With every step, rescuers stumbled and fell. They wore through knee pads and boots during a two-hour shift. As they cleared one area, they raced to shore up leaning walls and collapsed ceilings with huge pieces of timber and steel girders. It was a massive task that seemed never-ending, and with every new discovery, more sorrow. On April 25th, two days after the prayer service on the Oklahoma State Fairgrounds, investigators charged the two Nichols brothers. 40-year-old Terry Nichols and 41-year-old James Nichols were charged with plotting with McVeigh to make explosive devices in Michigan in 1992 and 1994. But these charges were not related to the Oklahoma City bombing. It was revealed that Terry Nichols and McVeigh were army buddies and both had been stationed in the late 80s at Fort Riley, Kansas, which is near Junction City where the Ryder truck was rented. FBI agents confiscated 33 firearms from Terry Nichols' home in Harrington, Kansas. They also found an anti-tank rocket and devices that can be used as blasting mechanisms. The affidavit used to charge James Nichols 
said that police found 28 bags of fertilizer and a drum of fuel oil on his farm in Decker, Michigan. Similar substances were used to make the Oklahoma City bomb. In the meantime, McVeigh refused to talk with authorities, claiming he was a political prisoner. He refused to disclose anything more than his name, rank, and serial number. Eventually, the world would learn that McVeigh earned the Bronze Star in the Persian Gulf War four years prior to the bombing in Oklahoma City. He grew up in upstate New York and after high school joined the Army. He first went to Fort Benning in Georgia, and that's where he met Terry Nichols. They served in Fort Benning in the same platoon before they were both sent to Fort Riley in Kansas. While in the Army, McVeigh started to develop a dislike for the federal government. He didn't want to pay taxes. He didn't want laws that curtailed his right to own guns. He became obsessed with the book, The Turner Diaries, which I mentioned earlier. The one that tells the fictional story of a group of well-armed men and women who call themselves the Patriots. They want to overthrow the federal government by use of force and violence. And they do so by making a fertilizer bomb and placing it in the back of a truck that explodes in front of a federal building in downtown Washington, D.C. McVeigh carried the book with him everywhere, and he gave out copies to his friends and family and urged them all to read it. When the siege occurred in Waco, Texas, McVeigh drove down to the compound to show his support for cult leader David Koresh and to sell anti-government bumper stickers. After the fiery conclusion to the siege, McVeigh grew more and more outraged with the government. He developed a burning hatred and he blamed the government for intentionally murdering the Branch Davidians on April 19, 1993. He described the incident as the government's declaration of war against the American people. So McVeigh decided he needed to strike back. For the next two years, he educated himself on how to make a fertilizer bomb using ammonium nitrate fertilizer and racing fuel. With the help of Terry Nichols, he gathered the materials he needed. Two tons of fertilizer, fuel, detonation cords, and barrels. They stored the materials in rented storage lockers in Kansas. McVeigh picked the federal building in Oklahoma City because he believed ATF and FBI agents responsible for the Waco tragedy had their offices there. Several of the ATF agents involved in the initial raid at Waco did in fact work in the building, but none of the FBI agents involved in Waco had offices there. McVeigh also picked the Oklahoma City Federal Building because he thought it was an easy target. It was also convenient. The building was close to Kansas where Terry Nichols lived, just blocks away from the interstate highway, and there was a perfect parking spot in front of the north side of the building. He picked the 19th of April because it was the second anniversary of Waco. But also, April 19th, 1775, is the day that the American Revolution is reported to have begun. That's the day the opening shot was fired in the battles of Lexington and Concord, which marked the beginning of the American Revolutionary War against Britain. That day is known as Liberty Day or Patriots Day, and it's become sort of a high holiday for radical right groups who believe they live under the thumb of a tyranny. 
Back at the site of the bombing, rescuers continued to search the building until May 5th, 16 days after the blast. It was finally called off out of fear that part of the federal building would collapse on rescuers. All but two bodies were recovered, the bodies of two women who worked on the third floor in the Federal Employees Credit Union were never found. Bagpipes played Amazing Grace as rescue workers held an emotional farewell ceremony at the site to mark the end of the grueling search. During the 20-minute ceremony, officials placed a wreath in front of the building. Rescuers joined with their families and other onlookers who threw red roses onto the rubble. As the workers filed out in dusty hard hats and uniforms, hundreds of people applauded for 10 minutes. Workers kept their eyes downcast and some wiped away tears. Two and a half weeks later, what remained of the Alfred P. Murrah building was demolished brought down by two strategically placed charges. The Oklahoma bombing shook the very foundations of security in America. And things changed after that day. On May 21, 1995, in response to the bombing, U.S. President Bill Clinton permanently closed the White House section of Pennsylvania Avenue to cars and trucks. Previously, 26,000 cars a day passed by the White House. America's Main Street had been open since the beginning of the U.S. Republic, through four president assassinations and multiple wars, but not anymore. To improve White House security, 11 steps were taken, including putting in more bulletproof glass in the White House windows, and traffic behind the White House was also blocked off. Meanwhile, the search for John Doe No. 2 continued for about two months after the bombing. People were scared. What if he was planning a second attack? Many false alarms of someone being questioned or arrested were reported by the media. The FBI received over 14,000 tips. A second, more detailed sketch was released, and some speculated that it might be Terry Nichols' husky 12-year-old son. But then, in mid-June, two months after the bombing, the FBI quietly announced that John Doe No. 2 had been found, and they had concluded he wasn't involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. John Doe No. 2 was actually an innocent army private from the nearby base at Fort Riley, who just happened to be at the Ryder truck rental at the same time as McVeigh. But there were other people who would be implicated in the tragedy. During the two years that McVeigh planned the bombing, he visited several times with another army buddy, Michael Fortier and his wife, Lori. They shared his anti-government ideas, and on more than one occasion, McVeigh described to the Fortiers what he planned to do. They didn't help McVeigh like Terry Nichols did, but they did nothing to stop the attacks or warn authorities. McVeigh also wrote a letter to his sister just before the bombing, warning her that something big was about to happen. She too did nothing to intervene. Jennifer McVeigh and Lori Fortier both received immunity in exchange for testifying against McVeigh at his trial. Michael Fortier also testified against McVeigh in a plea agreement. He pleaded guilty to gun charges and received a 12-year jail sentence. Fortier admitted he transported stolen guns with McVeigh that were sold to finance the bombing. 
Fortier was released from jail in 2006 after serving 10 years. Terry Nichols was eventually charged in connection with the bombing, and in December 1997, following a federal trial, Nichols was found guilty of conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter in the deaths of eight federal employees. He was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. Nichols was then charged on state charges of murder. In 2004, he was convicted on 161 counts of first-degree murder. But the jury was deadlocked on whether he should receive the death penalty, and so he was sentenced to 161 consecutive life sentences with no possibility of parole. On June 2nd, 1997, Timothy McVeigh was found guilty on 11 federal charges, including conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction and eight counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death. The victims of the Oklahoma City bombing have been given not vengeance, but justice. And one young man met the fate he chose for himself six years ago. For the survivors of the crime and for the families of the dead, the pain goes on. Final punishment of the guilty cannot alone bring peace to the innocent. It cannot recover the loss or balance the scales, and it is not meant to do so. Today, every living person who was hurt by the evil done in Oklahoma City can rest in the knowledge that there has been a reckoning. On June 11, 2001, McVeigh was executed by lethal injection at a federal prison in Indiana. He spent the final hours before his death watching television, sleeping, and eating two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream, which was his final request. Ten members of the victim's families and survivors of the bombing watched the execution from a room beside the death chamber. Other survivors and family members of the victims watched the execution through a closed-circuit television feed more than 650 miles away in Oklahoma City. McVeigh didn't make a verbal statement before the execution, but in a handwritten statement, he quoted a section of the poem Invictus, which reads in part, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This poem was written in 1885, and it's been quoted in the past by world leaders, such as Winston Churchill, and recited by POWs in the Vietnam War, and by Nelson Mandela while he was in prison on Robben Island. It has inspired many to remain stoic, invoke self-discipline and fortitude in the face of adversity. But McVeigh twisted it to mean something much more sinister. The horrific bombing in Oklahoma City brought the threat of domestic terrorism into stark relief. In the aftermath, the FBI added many more agents to work domestic terrorism cases, and Attorney General Janet Reno created a special task force to investigate domestic terrorism. But not surprisingly, after 9-11, the dominant business of the FBI, as well as every other federal law enforcement body, became international terrorism. For years after the September 11th attacks, the supposed threat posed by al-Qaeda and other Muslim groups continued to drive policy. 
And yet, according to a 2019 New York Times article, as the machinery of government has focused on fending off threats of violence from the Middle East, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, it has not been paying attention to threats from within. And in this atmosphere of willful indifference, a possibly deadly movement has grown and metastasized. An FBI agent speaking in front of the House Homeland Security Committee in May 2019 revealed that since 9-11, more Americans have been killed by domestic terrorists motivated by far-right ideology, including white supremacy, anti-government, and anti-abortion views, than international terrorists. These include the August 2019 attack in El Paso, Texas, that killed 22 people. That's been called the largest domestic terrorist attack against Hispanics in modern history. In 2018, 11 worshippers were killed at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And who can forget the 2017 horrific attack where 58 people were gunned down at a Las Vegas outdoor concert. As for 90s-style militia groups, well, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, they too are on the rise. Almost a decade after largely disappearing from public view, right-wing militias, ideologically driven tax defiers, and sovereign citizens are reappearing in large numbers around the country. They employ paper terrorism, the use of property liens and citizens' courts to harass their enemies. And one's popular militia conspiracy theories are making the rounds again, this time accompanied by nativist theories about secret Mexican plans to reconquer the American Southwest. The Southern Poverty Law Center says that authorities around the country are reporting a worrying uptick in patriot activities and propaganda. On the center's website, it says, this is the most significant growth we've seen in 10 to 12 years. All it's lacking is a spark. It's only a matter of time before you see threats and violence. Terry Talley recovered from the physical injury she suffered in the bombing and continues to work for the Federal Employees Credit Union, which is now called Allegiance Credit Union. She worked for many years with a counselor and a psychiatrist to manage symptoms of PTSD. Terry told me she suffers from survivor's guilt, and she doesn't agree with people who say that she's here for a reason. I have a hard time with that because you're telling me that I was left here, but those babies that were on the second floor didn't. They weren't worthy to stay here. I don't think, you know, God picks and chooses when it's your time. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. I just, it, I don't believe that they saved me over them. After the bombing, Terry and her husband divorced. She says partly because he was one of many people who believed in a conspiracy theory surrounding the bombing. Rumors have persisted that the ATF knew about McVeigh's attack in advance and got all of their agents out of the building but didn't warn anyone else. The ATF has repeatedly denied they had any advanced knowledge of the attack, and Terry dismisses the theory as completely unbelievable. As for McVeigh, Terry said during his legal proceedings, she struggled with what could possibly be done to him that would make her feel better. I honestly just had to forgive him. So that's, that's what I did. Now, it wasn't 
instant. It wasn't automatic. It's something I had to work through for my recovery. So then I can focus on, I could focus on me. In Oklahoma City, a National Memorial Museum stands in the place where 168 people were killed in April 1995. Not only does it honor those who died or were injured that day, it also pays tribute to the first responders and the everyday people who stepped in to help them. This became known as something that visiting rescue workers and journalists called the Oklahoma Standard. After that rider truck exploded outside the Alfred P. Murrah building, the people of Oklahoma City banded together in a community-wide display of spontaneous altruism. Cars became ambulances. Strangers became neighbors. People donated the shoes off their feet. People went out of their way to share everything they had to make it comfortable for the rescue workers, the firefighters, anyone who was there to help because that's the Oklahoma standard. Thanks for joining me as we look back at the terrifying events in Oklahoma City. And thanks to Terry Talley for sharing her story of survival. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, make sure to go back and check out some of our earlier episodes. If you want to reach out to me with other ideas for the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget, you can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. I'd love to hear from you about any ideas you have. This show is hosted and written by me, Kathy Gonzora, and Dila Velasquez is our producer. Sound design and final production is by the award-winning Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.